Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is a brilliant journalist whose career spans time in both the private and public sectors. She was the editor of the Sunday Telegraph, the Evening Standard, and more recently, the Today programme on Radio 4. She's now on the board of Hawthorne Advisors Strategic Communications Consultancy. She is, of course, Sarah Sands. And in this episode, she shares with me some brilliant insights into what life was like on Fleet Street in the 1990s. And by the sounds of things, there's a lot of alcohol, a lot of chatting and a lot of smoking. We also discussed the long days working on the Today programme and how who pays matters in journalism. We question whether social media might be the 21st century equivalent of the 18th century coffee houses. Finally, she discusses how she doesn't mind pockets of anarchy in the media. Sarah was superb. If you have any questions for her, then do email us at whyinvest.waverton.co.uk. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Sarah Sands, welcome to the podcast. Sarah, let's start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? I grew up in Malawi and then in the traditional manner of a parent in the what was then the colonial civil service to Tunbridge Wells. And I went to a Methodist boarding school, which was very much based at the time on St. Trinian's, I would say. And then went to Goldsmiths College, London University, where I was married very young. So, so far, this is not your ideal setting for a respectable career. (laughs) And then what drew you to journalism? Um, I think it's a quality that actually you can have that isn't necessarily related to an educational trajectory. You need to be very curious and have a new sense. And I think that's what I had. So I trained on local newspaper and I found just something about being first to know was one thing which you could at the time and being the first into print. So all this seems very quaint and old fashioned now, but that sense of exclusivity and understanding a bit about how the world works, whatever that world is. So whether that's flower shows or it's big political scandals, it's just something about being the person who can ask the question, I think was very attractive. So you went from local media to national media, I think it was around the mid 90s and joined the Daily Telegraph. What was the big difference between local media and national media? And what was that jump like in your career? Well, there was a sort of swagger to the national media. So we were very always very resentful if you're on a local newspaper and something happens in your patch and suddenly, you know, they all come down and they've taken over the pub and they patronise you. And so I still have a great fondness for local journalism. And actually, I think that was one thing that happened once social media arrived. It was the return of local journalism, so that the person who first got the story got some recognition and so on. So I think the way international media, which isn't the case now, but there was a route from local to national. So the presence of the news editor as being this tremendously important authoritative figure, one had learned all that much more sort of respectful, I suppose, of hierarchy. So it was a bit like being sort of other ranks in the news environment. So I loved it. And I suppose at the time also, so Fleet Street at the time, which was when I arrived, completely of another age. 
I remember hot metal. I remember typewriters. I remember going down to see the printers to get the blocks of print in. And you could say things like hold the front page and that would happen. So it seems, you know, romantic and in clouds of smoke. You know, I remember sort of sitting there with the bins being on fire all the time from cigarettes and so on. And the drinking, that drinking culture, it was, you know, almost like Downing Street. You would just be in Fleet Street from early in the morning uh, through the day. And the talking, I think that's the other thing that journalists would just sit around. You know, I remember my first day in Fleet Street sitting with, I think, some great old political sages of their time. It was Alan Watkins from the server and and others discussing, you know, the rights and wrongs of R.A. Butler and, and the what-ifs of political history. No sense that you had to get back to the office and file anything. And you stayed very light. So the evening ended, I think, in a not completely uncharacteristic way by you know, me falling down the steps and going um, straight to, I think it was uh, St. Bart's Hospital. So I think, you know, that was just a, mm. a day in the life, really, of, of Fleet Street. Well, I want to focus on this idea of how traditional media has changed because as you say you know if you had slipped into a coma after one of those all-day drinking sessions and then woken up in 25 years time it's almost unrecognizable and I wonder if you can pinpoint the sort of the big changes in in your world I mean be it the sort of removing of hierarchies or the the role of technology. Yes so I think those were the combined influences Actually having a different kind of workforce, actually having women in the workplace makes a difference because in the end, some of those references where everything was decided really in the pub started to change because they were just unsustainable. You know, that pop from the house, all family lives wrecked and work didn't get done. And so suddenly it was a sort of professionalization, I suppose. And so I think Women made a difference at the time. You were just known as honorary men, really. And you would never mention things like maternity leave or it would be seen as sort of weakness or rudeness, I think, to make any kind of demands. As you say, the internet changed everything and particularly good for women, actually, because it did mean that they weren't chained to, well, the desk or the pub in the same way. And I suppose sadly what happened with that so it was both a great liberation but also that was the start of the decline of the power of newspapers so when I was there certainly in the 90s newspapers made a lot of money you had huge circulations you had tremendous power and then to see that being stripped away and you know in a way I think it's made journalism more disciplined and better because you've had to always better when you're having to go through some sort of period of adversity and character comes out of that. And I do think some of the journalism now is as good as it had ever been, if not better. And that's partly because you have to work really hard at it. But all the perks have gone. Yeah, I see. Do you think then journalistic responsibility has increased over the last, let's say, 10 years, given the onslaught of content that we can, well, user-driven content through social media? Well, how do you think the role of journalists has changed and do you think that said responsibility has increased as a result? Yes I mean of course journalism isn't sort of homogenous so if you're talking about the BBC that's quite a different thing than talking about newspapers in the early 90s or 80s and 90s and so on so that apart from the else one's regulated one isn't and I think that that absolutely goes to the heart of things that the sense which I loved in newspapers that you know publish and be damned 
Whereas um, at the BBC, it's always looking at what Ofcom would say. So there are advantages and disadvantages to that. So I think generally there's more governance than there used to be and, a, and more scrutiny. And actually it's fair in that because there was so much power, I think particularly the newspapers, to decide narratives, the idea that people can take control a little bit of their own, it seems to me a sort of fair rebalancing. So I'm very pro sort of citizen journalism. I think on the bad side is that when you democratise something to that extent, there'll be good and bad. And obviously that's what we're still working out on the internet. And I'm a trustee of um, Index on Censorship and feel very strongly about free speech. But I can also see that there have been some horrible consequences to that. I also last year sat on the G7 Gender Equality Advisory Council So we're looking at some of those online issues, particularly the effect on young girls and the sheer weight and harshness of pornography that they're subjected to. So you deal with all that. So that's all different. And actually newspapers now or or the traditional media does feel quite a sort of safe, regulated space by comparison. Sarah, you spend most of your time in the private sector, having been editor of the Sunday Telegraph, editor of the Evening Standard. You then joined the BBC in 2017. I'm curious to know, what are the big differences in the job as editor in the public sector versus the job as editor in the private sector? One thing that struck me, I thought actually about editing the Today programme, that I thought it's interesting that this feels all responsibility and no power, whereas before it was all power and no responsibility. So I think that sense of being absolutely accountable and the decisions that you could make on newspapers, because really, as long as you were keeping within the law and the proprietor wasn't furious with you, you did have a lot of freedom. Whereas at the BBC, there are so many cordons and greater concerns. And you do have a very direct relationship with your audience and they're paying the bills. So you can't, it's not voluntary in the way that, well, different matter on the license fee, but it's not voluntary in the way that it is on newspapers. You could just say, well, don't read it if you don't like it. So I think you feel that weight quite heavily. And I think the good thing about that is that there was a very, very strong sense of public service and your responsibility of what you can do. I think it does tend to constrain you because you're always anticipating what the objections could be. So naturally makes you more risk averse or you go bolshy. How might you go bolshy? Well, you can always subvert within a system. And actually one thing that I'm, you know, sort of weakness over the time actually is having been used to slightly having my own way, reacting quite badly to sort of centralised control. Even at the BBC, I love the Today programme. I, you know, find it tiresome to be part of a greater bossy structure. And I was interested at the BBC that one was very aware of the relationship with the government Mm -hmm. and that there was a slightly sort of statist view, I would say, that you thought the government was the problem, the government was the solution, that the state was of much more interest than the private sector. I think it was quite hard for them to even understand that the impulses you tended to go into sort of stereotypes on capitalism bad. So in a way, I sort of miss the private sector. But I think the freedom of that, and actually it's interesting, the question of who pays does have an influence now on the um, board at Channel 4. And you just do notice, even though 
another public sector broadcaster with a relationship, therefore, with the state, the fact that you're funding yourselves just does make a difference, I think, to your creative outlook. Is that an editorial difference, do you think? Or is that a I'm less likely to be sacked difference? Or is it a hierarchical systemic difference? How would you pinpoint the difference? Yes, a bit of uh, all of that. And I think the not being sacked is an interesting one because it did become an issue at the BBC where there were, you know, what I thought at the end became sort of circles of hell, which was that, and it's a good thing, it's because people feel loyal and committed to the BBC, but they don't leave, so they tend not to leave. So you therefore don't get people coming through. So there's nowhere really for them to go. So they go on something called an attachment, So which just means they sort of circle the programme. So there were people who worked on the Today programme who I'd never met, you know, in, in person because they were on attachments. And I think in the end that is quite, I don't know what you do because it's a you know plus and a minus, very good to have loyalty, but you need some sort of churn and you tend not to have that. And I think also it means that BBC people are always just talking to BBC people. There isn't that sense you get of shared ideas in the outside world. So I think that's a tricky for them. Okay, so let's pretend we have a completely clean slate. And, you know, we don't have any BBC. There's no legacy newspapers. We start completely again. What if you were designing a new system, a journalistic system? How would you design it? And how would you balance, I mean, being reductive but inclusive versus introducing nuance versus being probably a little bit more elitist? Um, I'm not sure I would design from scratch because that's a slightly authoritarian idea, whereas <laughs> I, I'm very pro the crooked timber of humanity and I think things evolve and I think that they self-correct. And I think in journalism, one often saw you would go too far on something and then there was a sort of cycle of remorse and then it would happen again. So I think I don't mind a bit of anarchy in the journalistic system. And then I think good stories come through, good people come through, the innovation happens. But I think obviously where the, the big division is what's public service broadcasting of some kind and then what's a freer system and I think the two can coexist I would probably go stricter and a bit more austere on public service in fact when I left the BBC the first thing I did was to buy the title of home service broadcasting because actually the home service I feel very romantic about it was you know it was much more educational it was a bit more austere you didn't have there was no showing off there were no presenters heaven and, um, you know, talks and lectures. And I still think there'd be quite a niche audience for that. I love in our time, the rest of the BBC, I'm not sure how much they do, but I love it. And I think the World Service, again, I'm absolutely sort of devoted to. And I think the principles behind it are so good. I think the thing with the BBC, which is always going to be the fault line, is that what's public service and what's entertainment, because you're trying to do both. And they, and they exist on very different values. Apart from anything else, you know, the salaries are very different. So quite hard to design something that works in every way. But what I do think is that journalism will come through and you see that index on censorship in very, very, you know, we talk about sort of freedom of expression. There's no particular sanction, you know, where people are producing journalism, where their lives are at risk, certainly their liberties at risk as a result. I feel so full of admiration for. And Mm. so that's what I would really champion. And then at the other end, you've got a very sort of boisterous 
press here, which I I don't mind. You know, I can see how some of the political it could affect the political culture, and I know that that sense of it's hard to get things done in that environment, and it's sort of overexcitable. And it is interesting that that self-correction, that calmer outlets do emerge. So things like tortoise media, and I think there's another one coming called slow news something. But it's that sense of actually approaching things in a more sort of cool-headed, analytical, long-form way. So I think there's room for everything. But I still always will look at breaking news and, you know, my heart will leap a little. (laughs) Um, And how then would you compare our system Cricket as it is. Sorry, cricket is exactly the wrong word to use. Monkey, perhaps, as it is. Higgledy, piggledy. Higgledy, piggledy, I think that's a much better phrase, (laughs) as it is, to our friends in America. I mean, the messaging in America, if you spend much time watching Fox News, is pretty clear. You know, it's pretty inclusive and perhaps at times is guilty of lacking that nuance and loses that nuance. And I wonder if that is a better system, better in inverted commas, because it's more inclusive, or whether or not it leads to, I mean, it stokes this sort of fire of polarization. So I wonder if you can compare and contrast the two systems. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So in a way, yes, American journalism generally more polite, but on the fringes, a lot wilder. So actually, do we perform a democratic function here by the press being more exuberant and childish? No, and certainly sort of funnier. I mean, that's one thing I'd really like about social media, actually, that it's the playfulness and the wit and the speed to respond to stories I'm so full of admiration for. And it is the sort of thing that we used to, I suppose, rely on things like private eye. But now there's a terrific, real kind of 18th century sort of mood, I think, on social media. So it does go back to the original satire and coffee houses and swift and i love all that and i think it is that's the british way again i would look at both but i'm not sure that the effect of a to say more sort of liberal polite media in america in the end prevail because it set itself up for a backlash or a counterculture where in a way i think that we're genuinely a bit more inclusive here that there's you know room for everyone in the big rough and tumble of mainstream media Yeah, it sort of feels like we sort of muddle through. And I always think that the Americans talk an awful lot about freedom of speech. And, you know, that's one of the places hell's virtues. But crikey, I prefer to be in Trafalgar Square shouting my mind than Times Square shouting my mind. I mean, I think you become way more unstuck. And I think a lot of our American colleagues, we were talking about Joe Rogan earlier today, you know, a lot of our colleagues become completely hamstrung by the counterculture. So maybe the answer is to muddle through, you know, with our system. I want to turn to the value sort of we attribute to journalism, because I think, and you kind of mentioned it, you know, it is different depending on who's paying. Do you think we're done now in terms of traditional news outlets rejigging their proposition to online rather than print? And then, therefore, the second question is, you know, is this the end of, you know, physical print media? Well, it's interesting that it should be, and it isn't. And actually, if you look now at when a political story breaks, particularly if it's about sort of personality or demands a bit of kind of colour, I think, you know, television is good on events and in its old-fashioned form, standing outside a building saying what's happening. But 
actually telling you what's going on inside, it is interesting how many people immediately turn to, say, Tim Shipman in the Sunday Times. So actually, the influence of newspapers, I think, is in some ways greater. And actually, if you look at social media, you're looking at those journalists. Those journalists tend to become now more sort of individuals rather than perhaps attached to their newspaper. But you're looking at those people who would really be able to give you insight or information or something extra. And they tend to come from newspapers. And I was interesting on the Today programme that when I started one thing that's always part of it and and in some ways seemed like an anachronism, not thought for the day, but the paper review. And uh, so we did try and um, modernise it a bit and have more websites and so on. But actually, in the end, the newspapers were still sort of setting the agenda. They were setting the tone that because there's a sort of variety too. again, they sort of balance out of, you know, I always think read the Guardian, read the Telegraph, then you get a mix. So actually, I think the newspapers have stayed pretty influential. It's just that the economics don't match up to the editorial. Yeah, I see. I mean, you're a brave person to bet against the traditional media outlets and the power that they wield. Going back to the Today programme and your time on the Today programme, I'm quite interested to hear what the day-to-day existence on the Today, being editor of the Today programme entails. And, you know, what's Nick Robinson like at four in the morning? Um, Perhaps what made me distinctive was that I'd come from outside the BBC. So the culture was fairly new to me. I felt I could do the Today programme because it was the nearest thing to a newspaper in that it's a mix of things. There's the main story of the day. You try and broaden it. And I was interested in this resistance to some of that, that actually, for instance, if you did art stories, which you would certainly do in newspapers, you can't just do nothing but political committees. But that was seen as somehow a bizarre thing to do, whereas actually seemed quite natural to me. And actually now all these things, anything new when you're dealing with an institution feels sort of revolutionary and everyone reacts and then it's fine. You know, so actually now the programme is broader. They do do art stories without it all going up in flames. So I think it was adjusting to that culture of seeing kind of what makes their heart beat faster, as it were. Actually, there was a New York Times journalist who said to me when I joined, I love the Today programme, but are all your listeners in hospital or in prison? Because you do seem very, very fixed on those things. <laughs> and I thought about it and I thought, no, it is interesting that actually social affairs is what really interests journalists. And partly because that it's public sector, that there's a, a natural and, and commendable interest in the underdog, you know, that they're not very interested in power and they're suspicious of power. And actually, when you see that, I, I was there with John Humphreys, who I thought was a fascinating journalist because he was genuinely impartial. A lot of people assumed he was very pro-Brexit and he got into trouble over that, even though actually he voted to remain. But what it was was that he sensed that the powerful people tended to be Remain and there was something instinctive in him that, you know, reacted to that or against it. So he tended to give them a harder time. So I think that's all all to the good. The hours are quite hard. And again, I hadn't, because I didn't understand, all I knew was that it would seem to be this perpetual work in progress so that I would come in early and then the last call was post news night. So actually, you know, you were on less than six hours, you know, for years <laughs> sleep. And it was only afterwards that someone explained that actually those hours are normally delegated and you do 
you know, meetings in the middle of the day and so on. So I just literally didn't know how it ran and did it as a, ran it as a sort of news editor. But absolutely loved it. The great hidden treasures are the producers who work so hard in such long, horrible hours and do these beautiful briefings, you know, reels. In fact, sometimes they were too good. I remember having an argument once, I think it was with Matt Hancock, saying, you know, that why were the questions also antagonistic or something? And and I said that those were things he had said, those were the discrepancies. And he went, well, you've got your briefings, I've got my briefings. You know, should we just throw away the briefings and have a conversation? And in a way, he's talking about the podcast, you know, as a form. So I think, again, I think that it is interesting how journalism evolves and changes and corrects itself. So in some way, it is a slightly formal, traditional convention that now is being overturned by people wanting something less perhaps interrogative or antagonistic or gladiatorial that's more conversation and that there's time to discuss things. And so then as we look to the future, what do you think the future holds for this sort of perpetual work in progress? And let's think about podcasts first, because it seems to me they have exploded in the last five years. And, you know, some journalists and you know, reporters have taken up the mantle very successfully and then, some, you know, some haven't. I wonder if you can comment on what the future holds and whether or not we do just sort of continue this sort of ebb and flow between media channels. Well, I am pretty optimistic that the best tends to survive and prevail. And we've seen that happen in the past. And there's obviously such a choice now that everything's so fragmented. The danger is, therefore, you retreat, as we know, into an echo bubble of just having bespoke journalism that confirms your own views. And I'm very much against that. So I like the public space or actually public service broadcasting where there is a sense. And actually it's what I loved about the Today programme, that you had three hours, no other programme like it. And you could cover domestic events, foreign affairs, ideas, politics, obviously mainly, but that there would be things. Science, I was very, very keen on including At the end, I always thought, oh, you know, what have you learned? What did you not expect to hear? And I think that sense of things being a broad canvas of different views is a wonderful thing that I would hate to see disappear. But I do think that from all the journalism, one remembers what's good and also the journalists that are good. And I think that there's a much greater chance now for good, untried journalists to come through. And partly because, you know, I I remember... Journalists coming to see me and saying that they would like to be foreign correspondents. And what do they do? And I said, well, just go now. You know, that, so before you would need to wait and be part of an organisation. But you can just go to wherever something's happening. And, and I have seen journalists sort of make their names that way. And I think the other thing is a sense of back to, you know, my little local newspaper and seeing that, you know, the big boys arriving. And you saw that magnified in world events where you know, it was always said, where are the widows and orphans? You know, we've arrived, we've got the cameras and so on. And seeing some of the brilliant journalism that's done, the one that strikes me actually was um, during Afghanistan, the BBC using Sekunder Kamani, who could speak the language, could speak to the Taliban. It was beautiful, stunning journalism. And I think that's a great plus of things like the World Service of being able to actually make use of people who understand the countries and local cultures and so on. I think that's a big shift that you'll see. And again, that's why I'm so pro-citizen journalism. 
And so final question, Sarah, what advice would you give to our young listeners who are perhaps thinking of pursuing a career in journalism? What skills do you think they need to equip themselves to be successful in this day and age, not in perhaps the 1990s when you were cutting your teeth? What skills do you need today to be a great journalist? Well, I think in some way it's the same of, you know, sort of curiosity, resourcefulness, of resilience I think the difference is is it your do you need another job you know and I think that's interesting I was sitting on a board talking about finances and then noticed that three of the people around the board I was took to one played in an orchestra one was in a choir and one had another such a great passion absolutely unrelated to finance but none of them all could have had careers in those fields but realized that you just can't make a living I think that would be terrible by the way if you know suddenly all our violinists have to go and be investment bankers but I think there is it certainly to people that I know you know my own children who've been interested in journalism I would say you need to earn a living and then there are still traineeships that you can apply for, obviously multidiscipline. So you must know about video journalism. You must be able to do social media and so on in a way, you know, that I, you know, I remember going off on um, jobs, you know, with a photographer and I would do my bit and, you know, he would do his. And now one person is meant to do everything, you know. So I think that sense of where the market is, video journalism, obviously very big. But I think otherwise, just a sense of adventure. And I always think, well, what is the story? What can you bring that's a genuine news story? You know, have you lived through something that genuinely gives you an insight into geography or demography or society or something? So what is it new that you can bring? Because I think, you know, there's no point in just saying you can do another interview with a celebrity who's been interviewed thousand times or something so it's always what can you bring but I think it's hard so I would say yes partly you know do maybe another job at the same time it's a bit like I guess you know now being an actor or something you probably also need to be a waiter and I think that's I'm afraid also true of journalism. Sarah Sands thank you for joining me. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Sarah Sands. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like it, subscribe to it, and tell your friends and colleagues. Thank you. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.